0: Our scripture reading this morning is from Isaiah chapter 40. We're going to be reading the first two verses. You can find it on page 599 in the few Bibles in the rack in front of you. That's Isaiah chapter 40. We're reading the first two verses. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her, that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. This is God's Word. Well, you were spared. Well, we were not spared at the early service. Uh, we We were blessed to have a rendition of the opening line of Handel's Messiah by Carol Wynne. Uh, that was a scary moment uh, from which he recovered his composure very well. And the rest of us are surviving to this day. Well, you know, perhaps no piece of music has made such a lasting impression on, uh, on the world as Handel's Oratorio, the Messiah, has. First performed in Dublin in 1742, it has survived its greatest critics a number of incompetent choirs, and at least one associate minister. (laughs) It is a classic, a classic example of gospel music that marries biblical text to an appropriate musical score. Handel's Messiah opens with the words of Isaiah 40. Words, I think, that best capture the apostles' great theme, the messianic hope, the hope of salvation and redemption that are in Christ Jesus the Messiah. And the oratorio captures also something of the the pathos and the drama of the original. For here is Isaiah at his literary best. The language is majestic and exalted. The phrasing and balance of thought is outstanding. And as for its lilt and cadence of expression, it is incomparable. But Isaiah did not write this for its literary, artistic, or aesthetic value. He was not interested in providing us with a literary masterpiece. But rather the Holy Spirit of God had lifted him and carried his thought and guided his words and given him a message Which was a very clear, powerful word of God. And in this message, God himself speaks words of saving comfort to his people. God is the speaker. Did you notice that in these opening stanzas? It is God who speaks words of news, good news. Words of comfort. Comfort. Comfort my people says your God. He writes those words off the back of a promise he had made or an announcement that he had made of terrible disaster that was coming upon Jerusalem and upon the people there. You can read it from verse 5 in the previous chapter, 39, when Isaiah says to Hezekiah the king, Hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing, nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And some of your own sons who will be born from you, whom you will father, shall be taken away, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Isaiah had predicted this terrible future, about 120 years into the future it would happen about a century later in 586. And between that future day and Isaiah's day, there was a more immediate threat. Uh, for the people of Isaiah's day, Babylon was not really any power to figure with or reckon with. It would be as if I were to say to you this morning, in hundred and twenty years time you better watch out because Venezuela is going to be the great power in the world. You think Venice? Is that not in Italy? No, Venezuela. It's down south somewhere in Central America, I believe, or South America, one of those places below Mexico. And Anyway, my knowledge of your geography is as bad as your knowledge of the rest of the world. Uh, anyway, sorry, that was a, that was a mean uh, and ill-spirited, though accurate comment. <laughs> at, the, at the time that Isaiah is writing, to get back to Isaiah and take the heat off me for a second, uh, his, the real opponent was Assyria, but the, the words that Isaiah was to say about Assyria, for example, the end of Assyria's power. There was a Syria parked right outside, of, right outside of Jerusalem. And, and uh, one day they just got up and they left, just as Isaiah said they would. By the time he died, Isaiah's credibility in the eyes of his fellow Jews in Jerusalem was established, which is why his words survive, because they recognize that he was a prophet sent of God. Tradition has it that Isaiah died as a martyr during the reign of Manasseh, who had him sawn in two. And there's a reference perhaps to that in Hebrews chapter 11. Eventually, after a hundred years or so, the Babylonian army arrived, besieged the city, camped outside as famine raged within the city walls. Its inhabitants ended up eating human excrement. Perhaps the nearest modern example of a scene that has been captured In the movie Stalingrad, if you get a chance to look at that, the city is devastated by the German troops, surrounded by foreign powers. The people are living in abject poverty, scraping around for anything with which to survive. Utter devastation. That was the picture of Jerusalem when the Babylonians attacked. A royal family taken as slaves to the Babylonian court. And it would seem as if all the promises of God, the promise of a king that was to come, a Messiah who would come from the line of the kings of Judah, it seemed as if all the promises of God were smashed with the smashed houses and the devastation and the demoralization which was total. That catastrophe etched itself on the consciousness of the Jewish people, and is perhaps even, well, this is guessing, but perhaps even a greater powerful impression even than the Holocaust itself. No greater contrast could be imagined between the reality of the exile and the promises of God on which those people had placed their trust. And so the Babylonian invasion precipitated a crisis of faith. Where was God? How could this happen to them as God's chosen people? Where would the promises of the Messiah and the future kingdom be fulfilled? Was it all a pipe dream? Was God able to deliver them? Was God, in fact, even willing to deliver them? Those were some of the questions. And Isaiah spent most of his life warning of that coming disaster. Starting from chapter 1 where he announces that, that the people of Judah and Jerusalem are a sinful, they are a nation marked by iniquity, full of iniquity. That wherever you look they were full of wounds and bruises and putrefying sores. It was a dreadful picture of the moral and spiritual state of the people of Israel, generally, and of Judah in particular. After all these were a special people. For about a thousand years those people living within the proximity of the tabernacle or later the temple could have seen every day a tower, a pillar of smoke or cloud hanging over the Holy of Holies and by night a pillar of fire above the Holy of Holies as a mark of the supernatural nature of the God whom they worshipped. For a thousand years, they had story after story after story of deliverances and, and rescues. Last minute moments where they were, they were just pulled from the flames as it were when the seas opened and and they were able to cross the Red Sea, when they were sustained for forty years in the desert, when the the River Jordan opened to let them cross over into the Promised Land, when their enemies were subdued and conquered, when Elijah and Elisha come along and by their powerful demonstration of of the work of God and those miracles shows them that God has spoken to them. Again and again, what have they done? They had turned from their God to the gods of the nations round about. They'd drunk from the cultures that were all around them rather than drinking from the water of life that God had provided. And Isaiah throughout his ministry has exposed the extent to which they had grieved and offended the Holy One of Israel and the terrible litany of their sin and the repeated threat of their demise has simply grown louder and more insistent as the book has progressed. Which is probably why some of you wanted me to skip the first part and start at chapter 40. I don't blame you, because it is hard to bear the frightening implications of chapters 1 to 39. That to rebel against God, to trust in powers or things or people or ideas or agendas rather than him or his, is to engage in a form of self-sufficient, self-salvation, and is utter, utter folly, and shuts you up to one conclusion the wrath and judgment of God. That's where we left it in chapter 39 and then out of the blue unexpected and undeserved you have these words they're not even introduced they come straight from God as it were They're speaking to the people beyond the exile, but still in exile. They're speaking to people beyond the period of the history of of the people who came back from exile. They're speaking, believe it or not, they're still speaking to people sitting in this room today. They're talking about a greater rescue, a greater redemption, a greater return than any could have imagined. Handel was right to start his meditation on the Messiah here with this proclamation of good news because here is God speaking speaking out of his own presence he is addressing those people in the post-exile period and he is addressing us it is a message From the Lord. He is the speaking God. He is there and he is not silent. He speaks through his servants, the prophet. The language evokes the the image of the heavenly court. I think of that verse in 1 Kings 22. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne and all the host of heaven standing beside him on his right hand and on his left. And the Lord spoke. And here is the Lord in his council, speaking to his ambassadors, to his angels and archangels, to the cherubim and seraphim, to earthly messengers like Isaiah, the prophet himself, an ambassador. It was Jeremiah who said that the hallmark, the proper role and posture of a prophet is this, that the true prophet is one who stood in the counsel of the Lord to see and hear His Word. And prophets and those in the line of preachers whose job is analogous to that of a prophet are to stand and see and hear the Word. Cotton Mather, the uh, Puritan pastor in New England wrote, the great design and intention of the office of a Christian preacher. Is to restore the throne. And dominion of God. Over the souls of men. You remember Isaiah's defining moment. In the first part of the book. Do you remember? He goes into the temple of the Lord. And there he sees the Lord. He can't get into the temple. Because the, the robe of God is filling the temple. The, the sheer splendor and majesty of God. Is filling the place. And there is the prophet. Here is the mouth the mouthpiece of God. Here is the spokesman for God. He goes into the presence of God and realizes in the presence of God that he is a sinner, that his very words are sinful words. That he stands in solidarity with all of the people of God before a holy God, undone, coming apart, torn apart at the seams. He's in the presence of Almighty God. Now, here's Isaiah then, and he's now preaching to us the message God gave him in God's own words. And what we discover here is this good news message, you'll call it that later on in this chapter. It's a good news message. We call it a gospel message. He tells us that this good news is a message sent by God, addressed to his people, concerning their salvation. Let me break down that sentence. The good news is a message sent by God. There's the first thing. Look at the text. Says your God. In other words, there is no other speaker at this point. The gospel is first of all a message you hear from God. And the content of the message, the heart of the message, the substance of the message, is the work and act of God himself. And in many ways that message blows away some of the misconceptions people have about God. Some think of Him, don't they, as a cosmic tyrant, a bully who throws his weight about, someone who's only interested in curbing our fun, a hard-nosed God who delights to exact punishment, who hides behind the curtain or behind the corner till you put a foot wrong, ready to pounce on you. Is that your image of God? You see, nothing could be further from the truth. You go back to the human story, right to the very beginning of the human story, to our first parents in the Garden of Eden. What does God do with those first human beings? There's all kinds of talk, isn't there? There always is. In, In the media... When people misbehave in one form or another, just now it's the misbehavior of the the ISIS people in the Middle East. And, And the solution is always, well, if they lived in a better place, if they had a better environment, if they had more money, if they had, you know, fun toys to play with, if only life was easier on them, then they wouldn't be doing the things that they are doing. And here's Adam and Eve. They're in a paradise, for goodness sake. It's the paradise of God. God has provided bountifully for them. Actually, everything there was, was theirs. They could do with it as they pleased. God came to them and said, Everything in the paradise is yours. You can eat anything. Play any game. do any, Have any fun you want to have. You can have it here. And unlike people here today in this room, they didn't have to live by faith. Because God visited them himself. He took on a bodily form and he visited them in the garden. And he spoke to them face to face. As a man speaks with his friend. God was real to them. Very, very physically real to them. Didn't have to imagine or think or wonder or speculate. Didn't have to believe. They walked by sight, not by faith. And these were the people. Given all that they were given who broke the one law God gave them. And in turning against Him, brought down upon themselves and their descendants all the misery that we now see in the world. And what does God do? Does He flick the switch and press the button for nuclear holocaust? Does He obliterate them? Does He annihilate them? No, he comes to the gate of Eden after they've been evicted, and he says to them, I'm going to fix this. I'm going to fix this. I'll make you a promise that an offspring of this woman will one day destroy the works of the devil, and I'll do it. I'll do it, says God. Well, he who speaks the word comes with a message, a message that's sent from God and is addressed to His people. "'Comfort, comfort my people,' says your God." Now, I want you to notice what the state of the people is that receive this message. He's obviously addressing the people who returned from exile in Babylon but as the book progresses we discover that he's not only talking to people from Israel or or Judah he's talking about he's talking to people all around the world because they're going to be impacted by what this message contains and here's the condition of these people three words describe it first of all there's the word warfare warfare verse 2 these people are in a state of war War is the converse of peace. According to the Bible, human beings are constantly, since the fall, in a state of war with God. We are His enemy. He is our enemy. We actually feel that He is our enemy. He is against us. That's, that is the great lie that Satan has sent around and that we are buying into and believing. God is against me. And we return the compliment. I am against God. We're at war with God. What you can say about war is that war destroys people. It robs people of peace. It brings them trouble. It fractures human relationships. It disturbs people's peace of mind. When we resisted God, when we rebelled against Him, we brought war down on our lives and within our hearts. There is a restlessness, there's an unsureness, there's a hopelessness. War brings with it frustration and vexation, hardship and tears. Where war rages, we are always hoping that things will only get better. That's true of physical war, isn't it? We're always being told this is just the the next one will be the last one. I really don't remember the First World War. Or the Second World War. But I do know that at the time of the First World War, this is the way it was sold to people. To get young men to sign up and go to war, it would be the war to end all wars. It didn't even end itself. It had a hiatus and was resumed again in what we call the Second World War. War. And war is not only the state between man and God, women and God, but between men and women, man and man, women and women. Think of the war of words that take place in the bedroom and the boardroom and the press room and the classroom and the courtroom. We are all affected, you see. We are all part of the same story. As Shakespeare said, one touch of nature makes the whole world kin. We are all kin. We're all part of what human nature is. And we are in a perpetual state of war, of of being at odds with God, but also at odds with one another. And that's why so many people feel a sense within them of divorce from themselves and society and from life. And nothing really, really satisfies. We try to find satisfaction in our family. They disappoint us. We try to find fulfillment in some activity or, or, or hobby. It disappoints us. We are frustrated people. War. Warfare. And this warfare is created by iniquity. There's another word that's described here. Iniquity. Iniquity is a, a twistedness, a, a perverseness in our nature. We're not what we were meant to be. Life is not what it was meant to to be. Everything is out of joint. There is something rotten in the state of Denmark, Shakespeare said, and in every other state as well. We keep taking the wrong turn. We keep making the wrong choices. We keep falling for the same wrong people. Iniquity is in us. And sin, sin means Missing the mark. Imagine there's the there's the the goal, there's the target, and the bullseye. Here is the bow, this is the arrow. We keep firing our arrows, and not only do they not hit the bullseye, they don't hit the target. They keep falling short, falling short again and again. It doesn't matter how much you've practiced or how little you've practiced. It doesn't matter how how hard you've worked at it or how How little you've worked at it. All of us, and we're standing there with the target of the glory of God. We fall short time after time after time again. We fall short of the glory of God. Sin and iniquity and sin are the causes of the war in the hearts and minds and in the relationships between people and countries, between persons and things. Everything is wrong. It's out of joint. If I can get into trouble, Christine. My wife was experimenting, before she was my wife, with knitting. And bless her heart, she wanted to make her boyfriend a sweater. Actually, it was one of these button-up cardigan things. I don't know what you call them. Anyway. And it was... Oh, brilliant, brilliant. It would have fitted me brilliantly if I had somehow or other <laughs> looked like this. Seriously, but it was brilliantly done. It was an experiment, and it was an experiment that I appreciated because it gave me a sermon illustration. The whole world, <laughs> the whole world is out of joint. Nothing is the way it's meant to be. I want you to look at this again here. You see, that's the state of these people that God is speaking to. But He identifies them even more closely. Do you notice that? Did you notice two possessive suffixes used here, presenting two sides of a relationship? My people and your God. Those words are important words in the passage. They're words, they're covenant words addressed to God's covenant people from their covenant Lord. Who who is comforted by these words? Well, it's those whom God has graciously chosen and adopted. It is for them. Whatever other benefits derive from His action for others, it is for them that He has acted. He is working for them. You know in John 17, Jesus is praying what is often described as the high priestly prayer. And what the high priest did when he was offering up a sacrifice to God in the temple was he would take the victim and he would consecrate the victim to God. And there in that high priestly prayer, Jesus consecrates the sacrificial victim that will bring eternal life to men and women and boys and girls all over the world. And he says these words, For their sake... These people that you have given me, Father, they were yours and now they're mine. You gave them to me. For their sake, I consecrate myself. In other words, the intention, the intention and the purpose behind the activity of God in speaking into our lives this good news message is that he might reach and win his People whom He has loved. People who have this promise that goes all the way back to Abraham and beyond that to to Eve and Adam outside the Garden of Eden. A promise repeated to David and through Isaiah and Jeremiah to the people of their day. A promise that was unlike the promise or, or the relationship that God had with Israel under the Mosaic economy. Given, he gave them a land, but it was a provisional, conditional arrangement. They'd broken the terms of that relationship. They were suffering the consequences. But that prior covenant, that gracious, unconditional covenant with Abraham, and the unconditional promise he'd made to King David, was a promise that undergirded this message, this message, which is a message still to those who are described as those who can say to him that he is our God and that we are his people and that Jerusalem, understood in the way Isaiah has been beginning to teach us to understand it, Jerusalem that is above, Jerusalem that is the bride of God, Jerusalem that will be described in the new covenant as the bride of Christ. Jerusalem that represents the community of these people, the church of God. It is for the church, it doesn't say in Ephesians 5, that He loved the church, His bride, and gave Himself for her. That's why Jesus was named Yeshua, because He would save His people from their sins. Well, these people are no better than other people. Do you see that? These people are marked by the same warfare and iniquity and sin as everybody else. They stand in need of God's action. So we come to the last point. The gospel is a message sent by God, addressed to His people, regarding their salvation. Between the time period at the end of chapter 39, and the language of the people that he's addressing in chapter 40, there was a great deal that would happen to Judah. The disastrous reign of Manasseh, the reforms of Josiah, the emergence of Babylon as a superpower, the destruction of Jerusalem, the raising of the city, the burning of the temple, and the deportation of the people. One of the great hallmarks of that period was that there was no comfort. Jeremiah writes about it in his Lamentations. How lonely sits the city that was full of people. Among all her lovers she has none to comfort her. Therefore her fall is terrible. She has no comforter. Zion stretches out her hands, but... There is none to comfort her. And then Zion gets to speak. They heard my groaning, and yet there is no one to comfort me. There's great intensity and emotion in that language. And it's emotion and emotion that's captured by repetition in these opening words. Comfort. 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 Comfort my people, says your God. In fact, that word will be used another seven times in the chapters that follow. It will drive the message. This good news message of God is intended to comfort his people. The first time this word occurred is in chapter 12, where we have a song of praise in which the voice of believing Israel testifies to its faith in God's latter days promise of salvation. And they say in chapter 12, verse 1, You will say in that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for though you were angry with me, your anger turned away, that you might comfort me. When would he comfort his people? Here in chapter 40, we have the announcement of the beginning of that comfort. And this word, you know, comfort, is... It's not one of the grand set piece words. It's not like supercalifragilisticexpialidocious or flocking down a hill of pilification or anti disestablishmentarianism or something really impressive like that. It's an ordinary, everyday word. It's the word you use of a parent going to the crying child and lifting the child up and holding it close. Holding it, kissing its forehead. Comforting it. It's the word you would use of a friend going to visit someone seriously ill in hospital, sitting by their bedside and taking their hand in their hand. Comforting them. This is God stooping to our weakness, mighty though He is. Stooping down. And do you notice He's speaking words of compassion? Look at the the way He tells the, the speakers to speak. Speak tenderly, he says to Jerusalem. Literally, it means speak to the heart. Speak to the heart of God's people. And proclaim to them, announce to them. Do you notice the speakers that God is calling into service here have not to say to people, listen, this is what you should be doing. This is what you have to do. You want sorted, these are the measures that you must take. Speak tenderly to the heart of the people. Tell them what I am doing, what I have done, God says. Announce to them the good news of my action on their behalf. What is he to say? Look at the message their warfare is ended actually accomplished there's been an action a big action a class action it has accomplished something and it's this the warfare has ended there is peace there's peace with God having been justified by faith there's the action we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Yeah. There's going to be peace between Jew and Gentile. Because by this action that God is going to, take to, to do, He's going to take these two opposing forces and reconcile them. They'll be reconciled into one man, one new humanity. By the action of God. Reconciled. Peace with God. Their warfare has ended. Peace breaks out at last. And how is that possible? Well, look at the second clause. Her iniquity is pardoned. Do you remember I said iniquity is the perverseness and twistedness in our nature? There is something hurtful and harmful at the root of human life. But now iniquity is pardoned. Now the language, the pardoning language there, is drawn from the sacrificial system, from Leviticus. And the language is saying two things, and you will best understand these two things if I tell you the proper words for them that you will know because you have had them taught to you so many times before. They they are propitiation and expiation. This this avoids me the next 15 minutes of the sermon, if you just understand those two words. You you don't? Okay. It's your your choice, so I'll have to go and explain. So, propitiation and expiation work like this. Let's backtrack for a moment. The phrase that's used here indicates that the penalty for her sins has been paid in full. A sacrifice has been made. Later on we will find out how it was made in chapter 53. The servant of the Lord was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us what? Peace, not war, peace. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. What an amazing thing. On the basis of the work of this coming servant, the royal pardon is granted. And it works like this. Through propitiation and expiation. Propitiation relates to God and expiation relates to sin. You propitiate God and you expiate sin. This is how it works. Propitiate means to appease, to turn away anger, justified anger in this case, to turn it away from me and to turn it onto the sacrifice onto this suffering servant so that he is crushed rather than me The chastisement I should have, He is chastised because of me. The sin that I should be carrying is laid on Him. He takes my place. And because He takes my place, He is my substitute. He carries my sin. He is punished in my place. The wrath of God that is directed to me is diverted to Him, absorbed by Him. That's what's happening on the cross when He cries out, It is finished! In that moment where He is God-forsaken, He becomes sin for us and is punished in the place of His people. And God is propitiated, and because God is propitiated, sin is expiated. It is dealt with. Now you can find both of these ideas. The second, perhaps more strongly of the, these ideas in Hebrews chapter 2.17. I'll read it to you. When talking about the Lord Jesus, he had to be made like his brothers, us, in every respect, human, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Now, there's a debate, actually. Should that be propitiation or expiation? We know that propitiation is involved. You have to propitiate God in order to expiate sin. So, probably both ideas could be contained there. But I think the weight, both are involved. The weight should probably be that the verse should be translated to propitiate, propitiation or to expiate the sins of the people. So, both are involved. Propitiation and expiation are involved there. God's anger, His just anger is dealt with. And the effect of that on sin is, to use other expressions you'll find in Hebrews, He purged it, washed it away. Chapter 1 verse 3. He did away with sin, chapter 9, verse 26. And he secured the forgiveness of sin, chapter 10, verse 4. And Isaiah will make even clearer what this dealing with sin means later on in chapter 43 when it says of God, when he says of God, that he will remember your sin no more. gone, invisible, no more. And the whole language here is drawn from the day of atonement in which two, two animals were brought. One was killed, its blood was shed, and the priest would take the blood into behind the, the, cover, the curtain, the veil of the temple, and there on the Ark of the Covenant between the two cherubim carved out of solid gold was the lid that covered the the broken tablets of the Ten Commandments. Those broken laws represent my guilt before God, and there on the lid of that mercy seat, as it was called, the blood of the sacrifice was sprinkled to cover to cover, the broken law. And the other animal, the sins of the people being imputed to it, was taken out by the Olympic runners as far as they could take it into the desert and released and was never seen again. This is the run-up to Christmas, to Easter. It's always a run-up to Christmas, but Easter comes before that. And on the cross, that's what Jesus is doing, you see. Our sins are operationally invisible to God because of Jesus. And then lastly, she's received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Now I want you to notice again, it's the Lord's hands. There's no human hand involved in this process. No human instrument, no human activity guarantees the effectiveness of this. It's all of God from beginning to end. And what has God done? He has, what she has received from him is not a quid pro quo. God is not simply measuring out a correct supply of pardon that exactly matches the amount of sin. No, no. What God gives is more than, double than, Far more than you can even ask or think, He gives generously, super abundantly, over and above what they could possibly imagine, a double portion of grace, all the grace that they need. It is is a message that God brings to us this morning of unprecedented, unmeasured, unmerited grace that is freely given to Jesus' people. Do you think of God like that? John Calvin says, no one will ever reverence God but he who is confident that God is favorable towards him. Are you confident today that God is favorable towards you in Christ? Let these comfortable words comfort your heart. Now, where do these words fit in the history of redemption? They were transported to Babylon. Uh, about 200 years after Isaiah spoke, some came back, but they never returned from exile. Some came back to Jerusalem and Judah, but it was still under Persian control, and then Greek control, and then Roman control. In fact, as early as the first century, Jews were still conscious that they were still in exile, that they had not yet heard God's comfortable words. We know that because Luke in his gospel tells us that there were still people in Jerusalem who were waiting, waiting, waiting for the comfort of God. I think Luke uses in some of the translations into English the word consolation, but it's the word parakaleo, which is the same word for comfort used in the Greek version of Isaiah 40. They were waiting for the comfort of God. And one of those people, a man called Simeon, saw a young couple come in to church one day holding their baby. When he saw their baby... A light went on in his head. God has come to comfort his people. My dear friends, the Lord Jesus is our great comforter. He has come to comfort our hearts with the pardon and the forgiveness and the multiple blessings that he brings. And that comfort from God is part of the daily experience of the child of God. Let me finish by quoting from the Apostle Paul in Second Corinthians chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our afflictions, that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Did Paul enjoy Isaiah 40? I think he did. He got more comforts into that sentence than you can imagine. His message? God is a comforting God. May you find Him to be that for you today. Let's pray. Father, we thank You that... You have acted in Christ to satisfy your justice, to turn away your wrath, and to cleanse and pardon your people. We praise you that we are ransomed, healed, restored, and forgiven through your Son, our Lord Jesus. Amen.